All right, so today's episode is going to be about deloads, and I want to hit on the three key points that I think are important to understanding why you need to listen to today's episode. The key point number one is why we do deloads. I'm going to discuss why we take deloads. I'm also going to discuss, and this is key point number two, how often you should take a deload. And key point number three is I'm going to talk about which type of deloads you should be using. Is there one kind of deload that fits everyone? Are there multiple ways of deloading? And perhaps is there an optimal way of deloading? And so on that note, I'd like to welcome you to Fitness for Fatherhood, the podcast helping first-time fathers find the time to regain their health and fitness and become the superhero dads their kids look up to. I'm Stacey Liddell, your host, a qualified personal trainer, two-time amateur physique competitor, and a freshly minted dad. I firmly believe that a healthy body and mind are the cornerstones to a fulfilling life. Get ready to gain actionable tools and strategies from real-life examples to take control of your health and fitness to become the superhero dad your kids can look up to. Alrighty, so let's kick off the first topic of today's episode. And I want to start off with talking about deloads. And there are a couple of ways to go about doing deloads. So deloads. So I will go into the different methods or the different way of thinking about doing deloads and the way that I ultimately prefer to do them. And then I'm also going to talk about why we would potentially want to do a deload and how often we should do a deload and if it's something that we should plan or something that we should do more reactively or is there possibly a third way of going about doing the deloads. So when I first got into training and bodybuilding, there were generally two accepted approaches to doing a deload, and I believe they're still quite popular. So I'll talk about those two types first, and then I'll talk about a sort of nuanced way of looking at your deloads thereafter. So the first way of doing deloads is actually program programming them, and in this sense, you're trying to sort of estimate how much fatigue you're going to accumulate every month or two, and then trying to prevent this accumulation of fatigue by taking a deload. So you're looking forward thinking, okay, right, I've got a really tough week of training coming up. After that, I'm going to need to take a deload to give my body some time to recover better. Now, the problem I have here is that it's impossible to predict the life stresses that you're going to experience looking forward into the future. For example, let's say you didn't see a really stressful week of work coming up and suddenly your boss dumps on a whole bunch of work that is expected and due on a very, very short deadline and this impacts your sleep, your eating, your recovery and now suddenly your program doesn't accommodate for a deload because it's programmed in already. Now obviously, you could shift and adjust around that, but it might just throw your whole training plan into a bit of chaos. Just something else to mention on these planned deloads. They often work better when you don't have the assistance of a coach. And that's because you don't really have someone checking in with you to manage your deloads. And if you just want something simple to go off and you just want to manage your fatigue, then maybe it might be a good idea to, to plan them in. 
Um, if you don't really understand how you're feeling and you don't really track your performance and those kinds of things, it could potentially be viable to those kinds of individuals. But I think a better way of doing it, and that's the second way of deloading, is using reactive deloads. And this you can obviously take advantage of, I think even more so, with the help of a coach because they can assess your performance, they can judge whether or not you actually have picked up and accumulated a lot of fatigue because relying on your own feedback and how you feel in yourself is a very poor measure of actual performance. So sometimes, I'll give you an example, sometimes we feel extremely tired. The other day, this past week, I wasn't feeling great. I felt like I hadn't slept enough and I was a bit tired uh, because I train early morning and I thought my performance would drop. So subjectively going into the lift and it was particularly the bench press, I thought I'd struggle and I ended up hitting a 12 rep personal best. So the heaviest weight I've lifted uh, for 12 reps since I started tracking my workouts. So that doesn't really inspire a whole lot of confidence in me in terms of how well I understand how I feel compared to how I'm going to perform. So that's just something to bear in mind. All right, so I've kind of separated the two types of deloads. You've got that programmed deload that you do once every four weeks, once every eight weeks, or you have a reactive deload, which you kind of just regulate your volume and you change the amount of weight you're doing depending on how you feel, which as I said, is a, it, it can be a bit tricky. Um, you can also go off your numbers. So if you can see you're not hitting the weights that you were expected to hit as you're progressing and tracking on an app, the one that I always punt, but I don't have any affiliation with him, is the app called Strong. And so if I can see, oh, this week I didn't progress as much as I would like to, sometimes I will back off a little bit. So one is planned, one is a little bit more flexible. The next question, I guess, would be, how long do we deload for? Do we take a week off? Is that too long? Is it too short? I personally think that taking a full week off is unnecessary. I think it's too much time away. And I guess here, again, individual variability does matter. Some people may take longer to recover, especially those new to lifting. You might still be sore and might not feel ready to perform the same lift again. But I tend to think that normally 72 hours or three days is the maximum window for a deload if you're going to deload reactively and choose a set number of days to go lighter. So, I mean, unless you've trained and you can really, really feel the lack of recovery and the pain, um, I don't see a reason to really extend that recovery window or that deload window beyond three days. I think the reason why I say this is, let's say you are doing quite frequent deloads in a one-year cycle, in a 52-week cycle. If you take five or six deloads in that in that year and you take a week off, you're missing five to six weeks of training as opposed to if you're doing three days, you're missing less than three weeks of training. So just something to consider. Um, you don't want to impact your effectiveness in the gym over the long term by taking too much time outside of the gym. And then it's important to talk about 
why we deload and what's the purpose behind doing the deload. And something I think a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking is that if I deload this week, then next week is time to aim for my personal bests because I've taken a full week or a couple of days away to rest. Now I should be pressing massive weights the following week. And I want to just say here, that's not really what we're trying to do here. The why is going to be different for different people, especially those of you who may be training as athletes. So the why of the deload will matter to you as the individual. I can't really make broad, sweeping, general statements about why we deload without really understanding the exact purpose behind your training. How one person reacts to a program I give them will be very different to the exact same program given to somebody else. So these are all things we have to take into consideration when, when planning to do our deloads. Also, we have different muscle fibers, the fast twitch and slow twitch, and different people have different amounts of each of those fibers. So often a person who gets worn down by a lot of volume work will do great with intensity work, with high intensity work, lower volume, but, but higher weights. So it really does matter what affects you and that will then impact your deload decisions. And something to, to maybe try, if you are somebody who gets worn down by high volume work, when you do your deloads, is to try and switch to the high explosive, high intensity work. You're going to be able to generate a lot of muscle stimulus without having to do as much volume. That's a trick that I've learned because for me, especially my lower body with my legs, high volume work really, really drains me. So when I'm feeling a bit weaker and I don't feel like I'm going to have a great session, sometimes I'll switch to that explosive work with my quad work and it really does help for me to increase the weight that I'm pressing without really having to do a ton of volume. So it might take you a bit of time. But you've got to figure out which of those two variables. Is it volume or is it the intensity that's causing you to accumulate more fatigue? And then you've got to play with, with either one to try and reduce the fatigue during your deload. You could also reduce both. You don't have to just reduce one or the other. So there are many people who will maybe say drop 15 or 20% intensity. And remember, intensity isn't to do with how you feel, how hard you feel like you're training, but it's an estimation of the percentage of your one rep max that you're performing. So this is an example I always use. If you are squatting 100 kilos as your one rep max, that's the heaviest you can squat. At 80% intensity, that means you're performing an 80 kilogram squat. So let's, for example, say you've been training at 80% intensity, during your deload, you might want to drop it by 20%. So you want to move down to a 60% intensity, which would be a 60 kilogram squat. You could also reduce volume by, you know, in a region of 30 to 50%. So let's say you were doing four sets of squats. You may drop that down to three sets of squats or perhaps two sets of squats, but reduce the number, but increase the number of reps so that you, you're reducing total volume, but not by too much. And so before I go into a third way of thinking about deloads, I just want to 
kind of pull out the highlights here and talk about the key points. Number one, do I think you should take a full week off of the gym? If you're somebody who's planning deloads once every four weeks, once every eight weeks, then no. I think you're taking way too much time out of the gym if you're not going to train for a week. If you're somebody who's maybe planning a deload once every four months or something like that, then maybe taking a week off wouldn't impact your overall training too much. The second thing, remember your why. Why are you doing the deload? And just remember, this is not so that you can do PBs the following week. There must be a clear goal to taking a deload. Perhaps your performance has dipped off and you need a little bit of time to recover. Perhaps you've got an extremely stressful week coming up ahead. So deloading is a good idea so that you can mitigate those stresses in your life. And the final point is to try and work out which variable, volume or intensity, is causing you to accumulate the most fatigue and then to manage that accordingly. Maybe you can take your intensity down, your volume down, or even both. All right, and now I want to talk about the third way of thinking about doing a deload. And this is something that I learned from taking the personal training certificate with Menno Henselmans. And I always give credit where credit is due. This is not something that I myself invented, but it's something that I use and something that I would love to share. So Menno calls it autoregulatory volume training or AVT. And basically what you do here is you plan the weight that you want to perform as well as the number of reps for just the first set. The subsequent sets that you will perform are then done gauging how close to failure you are when performing the reps. So you choose your proximity to failure. So let's say, for example, you do that first set. You want to do a squat for 100 kilos for eight reps. You do that and you feel how close to failure did you get when you perform that first set. If you were, if it was really tough in a difficult set, then you're going to probably perform lower volume over the next two, three sets, however many you're doing. If it was extremely easy, you hit your weight and you thought it was quite a light set, your subsequent sets are going to be able to be performed at a higher rep volume, right? So you're going to do more volume in your subsequent sets so that you can achieve optimal muscular fatigue. Excuse me, I said muscular fatigue. I meant muscular stimulus, of course. And so this is a great way of managing volume across long spans of time. And the great thing here is that you can become very specific about which muscles to target with your with your deloads. So if your legs are feeling tired after that first set, you can then become a little bit more flexible, reduce volume for your legs, but that shouldn't have any impact on the training of your biceps if you're doing a full body workout, for, for example. So if your legs are a bit tired, you don't have to now deload for your biceps as well. You can still go on and hit them as hard as you want. The science and the research does suggest that muscular soreness and muscular fatigue is a localized phenomenon. So if my arms are sore, it doesn't necessarily impact on the training of my legs. So that is something that we do see backed up in the science. An added benefit here that I think is underrated is the fact that we don't necessarily care about the number of reps that we're performing. We care about the level of stimulus and proximity to fatigue that we're feeling when we're training. So, for example, if you're training to hit 
100 kilo squat for eight reps, three sets, and you miss one of those sets, you can feel a little bit let down. You can feel a little bit, you know, miffed about that. However, if you just want to hit that first set and you hit it, but it's difficult and now you auto-regulate down, it kind of removes that cognitive stress and worry about not performing up to your expectations. That's something that I found really freeing and liberating in training in this kind of method. The big downside to this kind of training is that if you don't use it very strictly, it can lead to suboptimal training because if you did a hard set for your for your squat, again, I'll use the squat as an example, but it actually wasn't as hard as you're making it out to be, you may then give yourself a reason to slack off in subsequent sets. So this is something, this kind of training is something that you need to do when you're training extremely hard. You can't really uh, do it in a way that's that's sort of soft and where you're not really pushing yourself because then it will lead to you sacrificing long-term hypertrophy potential because you're not pushing yourself as hard as you can. So this is something you're going to have to really embrace, Is especially those of you who are intermediate and advanced lifters, is to use every gym session to push yourself as hard as you possibly can if you're going to use this AVT deload technique. Before I wrap up on the topic of deload, there are some helpful pointers to know which exercises are going to demand deloads more frequently than others because not all exercises are created equal. And in the PT course that I did, there were several factors that we looked at to assess whether or not a deload was going to be more likely. So I wanted to just quickly touch on them. The first thing that's going to matter is the compoundedness of the exercise. So the more compound dominant the movement is, think your big compound lifts such as deadlift, squats, bench press, there's obviously going to be more stress-induced, and so you're more likely going to need to deload these big movements over time. Another thing is terminal consistency. So this is the second one now. And that means, you know, when you're doing a movement, the goal is to try and replicate the movement as closely as possible for each and every rep. So for example, you're wanting to move the weight from A to B and not from A to C, A to D, A to, A to E. So for example, if you're doing a bench press, you want that bar to be moving and tracking in exactly the same way on each and every rep, which may obviously be a little bit more difficult when you're using free weights. In fact, an even better example is a walking lunge. If your lunge steps are varying distances, you can see that each rep is not anything like the one before. And the less terminal consistency there is, the less ability you have to make each rep the same, the less likely you're going to need to deload it because you're working slightly different muscles as you're changing the movement on each particular rep. The next key point is what we call micro-loadability. If you're able to add incrementally smaller amounts of weights onto an exercise, those are the exercises you're going to be able to deload more often on because you won't often run into a situation where you will need to deload. If your increments are smaller, you're probably more likely going to be able to lift the next progressive weight. Think, for example, 
of those machine weights, if you're doing triceps and the jump to the next weight is set at five kilos, you can't go any anywhere in between those five kilos, right? If you jump from 50 kilos down to 55 and now suddenly you really struggle doing the 55, it wouldn't make sense to now deload that exercise because you're going to find yourself in a perpetual state of deload. So it gets a little bit tricky when you have big jumps on the weights that you're performing to then perform deloads because you're going to, as I said, you're going to get stuck in a situation where you constantly think you're going to need a deload just because the jump in weight is too big. And the last thing to take into account is your ability to recover. So if you're somebody who has a very stressful life, you're going to find that you're probably going to need deloads more often. If you're somebody who has a very stable and chilled life, you're lucky because it's going to affect your training less and you're going to find that you don't need to deload nearly as much. And just to wrap up finally here, um, I think it's a good idea for me to give an example of a good exercise that fits the terms of compoundness, terminal consistency, microloadability, um, and a good candidate here would be a deadlift, right? Deadlift is a compound movement. The bar should be going up and down in a straight line. And with bar work, we can add tiny amounts of weight if we have access to them. I remember when I was training in South Africa, I had, I think, 0.25 kilogram plates and 0.5 kilogram plates that I would take with me to the gym uh, when I was reaching the very top end of my heavier lifts just to add a little bit more each time. And then a bad candidate would be something like perhaps a deltoid lat raise. Yeah, a delt raise to the side is not going to be great because it's very much isolated to your shoulders, the deltoid. Uh, the dis- the terminal consistency is okay. I guess if you watch your form carefully in the mirror, you can get that right. But the problem here is often microloadability. The shoulder is not the strongest muscle in the body. And so going from a five kilo dumbbell to a six kilo dumbbell can feel quite hectic. And if your gym doesn't have a six kilo dumbbell and you go from a five to an eight or a five to a seven, it's a huge jump. So that's why it would be a poor candidate for microloadability and a poor candidate for deloads. Okay, so wow, I really went into the weeds on that one and I'm hoping that it helps you to think differently about your deloads. If you're somebody who's planning your deloads and you've been feeling that they are or have been suboptimal, then maybe you can try either reactive deloads on their own or you can try combining reactive deloads with auto-regulatory volume training and give that a try and change things up. I know I normally address two or three topics per episode, but this one was quite a lot to get through. So I think I'm going to cut it off there today. And um, I hope you enjoyed listening and I hope that that gives you something practical to walk away with and think about in your training. And in the meantime, you know, as always, stay strong, stay fit, and strive to be the dad that your kids look up to. Bye for now.